This is CNN. Radio. This is CNN Profiles. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. And we're going to have someone sing our first question. Who can turn the world on with her smile? And now the obvious follow-up question. Who can take a nothing day and suddenly make it all seem worthwhile? Who can take a nothing day and suddenly make it all seem worthwhile? Well, it's Mary. And the TV executives should have known it 43 years ago when they heard the pitch for the Mary Tyler Moore Show. But you know, some TV executives, when they hear an idea that they've never heard before, can find reasons to say no. Our guest on CNN Profiles tells us what the executives said to the Mary Tyler Moore team when they made the pitch. People do not want to watch television about divorced people, Jews, people from New York, or people with mustaches. What was that? The executive said, you know, we want you to listen to some research from this guy who does our research for us. And he said that people do not want to watch television about divorced people, Jews, people from New York, or people with mustaches. Well, somehow the Mary Tyler Moore Show made it after all, and here with us to document how that happened is the creator of the website, sexyfeminist.com, and the author of the brand new book out this week on the inside story of the Mary Tyler Moore Show. The book is called Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted, and the author is Jennifer Cation Armstrong. And as you will now discover, she has with Lou Grant... Mary Richards' boss in the show called... You got spunk. Well, yes. I hate spunk. Hey, Jennifer, it's, it's Michael Shoulder in Atlanta. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, thanks. So this this inside story of the Mary Tyler Moore Show and, and those of us... I'm looking at your picture because we're in different studios. You're in New York at mm-hmm. Time Warner headquarters, and I'm at CNN headquarters in Atlanta. Different booths, but I'm looking at your picture, and... I can only think that you must have seen the show on reruns. You weren't around for the original, right? Well, thank you. Um, I was actually born in 1974, so I was right in the middle of the run and the year that the Rhoda spinoff started. So my guess is that I was watching probably the Mary Tyler Moore show, mostly in syndicated reruns. And I know I watched the Rhoda show because it went on, you know, farther. So you, here it is, it comes full circle You were how old when you were watching the Mary Tyler Moore show? I was like four or five or six when I was first watching these. And like I said, I'm pretty sure I watched the Rhoda show in its first run on network television, which would be the late 70s. So I think that I was watching Mary Tyler Moore show in syndication, and I was really obsessed with Mary and Rhoda specifically. And I actually used to what I I used to play Mary and Rhoda. You know how you play house. This is I played Mary and Rhoda. And I would either, if I was playing Mary, I would set up my desk because that was how I perceived her as like she worked in a newsroom and she had like a stapler and papers. So I would sort of play office to play Mary and I would wear a headscarf like Rhoda to play Rhoda. And clearly there was something that spoke to me in there. It's sort of it's exactly like the Tom and Jerry story. It's like at the time, how could I? I had no idea what I was responding to. And it's it's interesting to me that I was so little and responding to it. But clearly I saw it. It was like I went from playing house, you know, being a wife and mom when I was playing 
to playing single fabulous lady in the city, though I called it playing Mary and Rhoda. And the fact that I ended up eventually moving to New York City and being a journalist and being single for quite some time until recently, it's really interesting to me that my life turned out very similar to that. Congratulations. What, what, was your husband work, looking for Mary Tyler Moore and he found you? <laughs> no, actually, he's a Rhoda girl or Rhoda guy, I should say. I'm a Rhoda girl. Uh, he's a Rhoda guy. He has this massive crush. He had never watched the show until he lived with me and I was doing this book. And so obviously there was a lot of the show going on during the research phases. And he fell madly in love with Valerie Harper watching the show. And I, like I said, I am a Rhoda girl to some extent. So I, I do think that there must be some correlation there. So I think we, I think we can stay together. If we can bottle what, what Mary's got, and it can be guys and women, right? There's a certain mm-hmm. essential something that she's got that enabled her to just take on the world. What was it? And what did you discover? How did you go about trying to discover it in your book? This is always a problem when I was writing the book because there's Mary Richards, the character, and there's Mary Tyler Moore, the person, and it, sometimes they are the same and sometimes they are not, right? Right. So I think that it started with Mary Tyler Moore, obviously. Um, she does have this essential quality, right? On screen, when you watch her, she just has this sweetness and likability. That's the magic element in being especially a television star, you know, being in people's living rooms every week. They only want to hang out with you like that if they like you. And I think that's what people really responded to her first when she was Laura Petrie on uh, the Dick Van Dyke show. And then when she came over to play this much more kind of modern, edgier, you know, for lack of a better word, woman, um, more of a woman of the times in the 70s, single instead of a married stay at home mother like she was on the Dick Van Dyke show. And she still brought that essential quality to this character. And I think that was the key to making this character work. She ended up being eventually kind of a touchstone feminist icon because of her liberated status. It's such a big, silly word. But, you know, she was single. She was over 30. She was very unapologetic about being single, was not boy crazy at all. She was not kind of like desperate to find a man. She was a working woman at a time when massive numbers of women were kind of pouring into offices all of a sudden. And so, you know, and you notice she's the only woman in the newsroom that at least we are familiar with on the show. And so a lot of those things are really important, right? It's like this juxtaposition of a really likable, sweet woman, a good girl, you know, um, with these kind of more modern woman progressive qualities. We eventually learn, for instance, that she is sexually active on the show through little hints. You know, there's it's not like watching girls these days. You know, we didn't see stuff going on. But, you know, she mentions that she's on the pills. She stays out all night in one episode. Um, you know, the she was very, very progressive, but also had this sort of nice, nice girl quality that I think people also responded to. So I think it's the combination of those things that made her really special. And and what strikes me is as, as likable as she was, so in your book, you reveal that when James Brooks, the great comic mind, and Alan Burns first pitched to CBS this show, the response they received was, and, and, and you can convey it because you, you found it out, who, who gave them the response? And tell us what the response was when they first pitched it. Yeah, they pitched it to some executives at CBS, and it's kind of this 
really dramatic, big, famous story in their lore. You can tell they still enjoy telling the story of their storytellers. And so, yeah, they went in to pitch this idea that she was going to be divorced. And the reaction was not warm at all from the CBS executives. You know, it's all men. It's men in suits at this big table and they're at BlackRock, the scary big building in New York City. You know, they had flown to New York from Los Angeles to do this and they wanted her to be divorced. That was their thing. You know, they thought like lots of people are doing this now. This is really realistic. They were they're very funny men, but their big talent was to kind of combine humor with reality. And so they wanted that and they pitched it and the executive said no way. Um, One of the objections, which I think is a funny insight into their lack of belief in the sophistication of their viewers, um, they were worried that viewers would think she had divorced Dick Van Dyke (laughs) because she had been married to, well, I should say because she played a character who was married to a person that he played. Let's like keep it in the rut. This is none of this is real. You know, um, so they were worried about wait, wait, that. Wait. She, she wasn't she wasn't married to Dick Van Dyke. She wasn't married to Dick. Oh. Van, I'm sorry to break the news to you. She was not married to Dick Van Dyke. Oh, my God. Um, she still is not. They are married to other people. And then the other thing was that the executive said, we want you to listen to some research from this guy who does our research for us. And he said that people do not want to watch television about divorced people. Jews, people from New York, or mustache, people with mustaches, which is another one of my favorite quotes of all time. Um, so, you know, the good news was that they were not planning any of the others just yet. No mustaches or people from New York. And well, you know, Rhoda was Jewish, but I don't know if they knew that for sure yet. I'm not sure she was uh, observant. I'm not sure she was observant. She was not observant, ah. but it was very it was very important it was actually a really important point of ethnicity and it kind of ends up coming out later in the series. It's really interesting to me as a person who lives in 2013, how big a deal it still was to have Jewish characters on television at that time. That too was, was sort of a sticky point and they backed into it over time, slowly kind of revealed that she was Jewish. Is that right? Was it, was it a slow reveal? Um, They didn't, say the word Jewish for a while. Eventually she starts making jokes about like, oh, Protestants have this trouble with their mothers too, you know, well, that's um, interesting. that kind of thing. Yeah, but it's really, it it doesn't come out in full force until later in, in, the, in her time on the Mary Tyler Moore show. And then definitely once she had her own spinoff series, it was not an issue anymore. They they talked about it all the time. But, but let, me, let me go. Let me go. Know, let me go back. All delicate. Let me go back to the pitch because it's so it's fascinating. So they mm-hmm. basically got to know it first. How many times right. do they have to go back to get a yes? And and did they change the pitch? Did they reframe it? Yeah, that was that was the thing. And I mean, the sort of the sort of good news of this situation was that CBS had a deal with Mary Tyler Moore, and Mary Tyler Moore had hired James L. Brooks and Alan Burns to do the show. So it was kind of like it wasn't like they had only one shot. They had they they could go back and redo it. And actually, Jim and Alan originally talked about quitting the show. They thought, you know, we can't, we, they're not going to let us do what we want, et cetera. So they kind of fumed while they took that long plane ride back across the country to Los Angeles. But by the time they landed, they decided that it would look really bad for Mary 
and her husband, Grant Tinker, who ran the production company, if they quit. You know, so uh, they decided to stick with it. And leverage, it leverage. Yeah. Sweet, exactly. Ma- Sweet Mary had the leverage. Exactly. So the, that was the thing. And that's really important throughout the history of this series and why it was able to maintain its standards is because um, Mary and Grant owned their own show. You know, they owned the show and could run it the way they wanted to, to some extent. They had to also do business with the network. But they did have more power than your average production team because of the fact that it was like an it's basically like being an indie to some extent, you know. Um, So, yeah, they they went back and eventually decided they could compromise and they ended up with the concept that we know of as the show now, which is that she was leaving a long term relationship instead of divorce so they, they wanted this idea of her starting over in the big city right that was sort of the idea behind the divorce oh see so i so haven't instead, i haven't watched it in so long so she so in the end she was not a divorcee she had just broken up with somebody right she was not a divorcee and and do we know whether do we know whether she was dumped or whether she dumped somebody or whether it was an amicable we do. split we 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 do we get the pilot is actually fantastic and i recommend people go back and watch that pilot because it's a beautiful it's pilots are tough to make perfectly and i think it's a beautiful example they get a lot across very quickly and still entertainingly and her the only time we ever see her ex is he comes to visit her in the pilot and try to win her back but essentially it seems like they broke up because he, she had supported him through med school is what they say and the idea was that they were going to get married as soon as he was done and he became a doctor and he had now become a doctor but still didn't want to get married but kind of wanted to be with her so it was like a non-committal kind of problem um so she was just like no that's not what i want so she left him and he comes back to try to win her back in the pilot and she says no so that's what we learn and we never see him again um but it's it's a really it's a funny compromise that they ended up with because as I believe one of the producers pointed out to me in the book uh, CBS rejected the idea of divorce and ended up with basically living in sin right like they don't really make it super clear but you got to think if she was supporting the guy through med school they were living together and they weren't married so it's never spelled out exactly, but it seems like pretty much that's what ended up happening. So it's kind of a funny compromise that, that they ended up making. That's, that's so interesting. You know, my, my father happened to have been a professional stand-up comic, and he used to joke that uh, living in sin is dangerous. It could lead to the real thing. <laughs> actually, actually exactly. the joke was I blew his joke. It was trial marriage is dangerous. It could lead to the real thing. Mm. That was his, his joke. But, but Apparently it, not in Mary's case. And not in Mary's case. <laughs> no, and, and you know something? Uh, now let me ask you, you know, put on your different hat as a modern feminist, a sexyfeminist.com. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that took a lot of strength for a woman to not have somebody else because now I'm thinking of one of the favorite songs on my, on my jogging playlist, uh, Adele. You know, I'm, mm. I'm, I met a boy who, who I love more than I ever did you before. Now, you know, that's, and even then it was tough for Adele in the song to leave mm-hmm. her former beau, but to leave and not have anybody, that's hard. Uh, it really, it is, it is. And I have to tell you, I went back and started to watching the show. This It was a little before uh, I actually decided to write the book that I just decided to watch them all again in reruns 
in syndication. I just remembered it and I was like, what? You know, I want to go back to that. And going back to it as, as an adult, and especially at the time I was watching it, I was single and living in New York. Um, it was really fascinating to me how much it hit home for me. And one of my favorite moments in the pilot that still can choke me up sometimes when I watch it is when her ex, Bill, comes to see her and, you know, tries to win her back but still doesn't want to commit to her. And she says, that's not what I want. Um, he's going to leave. Uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll see you. Take, take care of yourself? I think I just did. And I, like, every time I think about it, I'm just, it, it hit me at some really intense, deep place. And I really, you know, it's one of those moments that you don't notice when you're five. Um, but but when you're 30, you do. And, and I thought that that was really ex- an extraordinary moment. And also shows... What, what hit you about that moment? Like, why did that resonate I mean, so much for you? I think I was like, she just did. That's exactly right. You know, she, like you said, it took so much strength for a woman at that time, especially. I mean, it's like you said, it's hard even for Adele or any woman now to do that, to give up something that you know isn't quite right, you know, because you feel like that pressure, like you should be settling down with somebody. And it just, I thought that that was so wonderful that despite any pressures that were still on her as a woman in 1970, over 30, you know, to get married and settle down. She said, no, I want to be out on my own instead of being with a person who's less than perfect for me. So let, 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 let me do this. That's let, great. This pilot is so fascinating to me because as great as this pilot is, as you describe it, and, and, and now that you, I think you've triggered my memory of it because I did see that a long time ago. And yet they had one of these basically focus groups, right? To look at the right. pilot and what was the reaction of the folks who was in the focus group and what was the reaction? It did not go well. There's a bunch of things that just did not go well in the early stages of the show. And those are always fun stories, I think, because when we know the thing, you know, the way it becomes a classic, it's like fascinating to see how things almost didn't go so well. But um, they had an early kind of practice run taping of the pilot. They wanted to tra- test some new cameras and they thought also oh, we can do kind of like a dry run of this and, you know, show CBS that we're on the right track because, as we talked about, CBS wasn't super excited about the concept early on. So they were they were going to do this. And, you know, it just went disastrously. It's like it was really hot that day and there was a bomb scare on the lot and the air conditioning wasn't working in the studio and the cameras were really bulky and turned out the, the audience couldn't really see over them very well. So they ended up kind of watching on the teeny monitors there, which doesn't translate well. Uh, things were still a little off. The very famous uh, you've got spunk, I hate spunk line from Lou Grant uh, went terribly. Um, and then they had people, They both the people inside that studio that day gave them feedback, but also they did do some focus groups later too and people did not like Rhoda especially that was that was a huge sticking point they weren't quite sure even about Lou um when we they, say when we know, say people when we say people who are we talking about the audiences that they had you know they get these random cross sections of audiences got it, got to it. test stuff out um and yeah it didn't test well and and the practice run was even worse I mean that was really really disastrous and then they made some adjustments after that 
tape the pilot. And then even still, like the testing was still not great. You know, it was they didn't really get it. It's like sometimes it's serious and sometimes it's funny. We don't really understand that combination. You know, why is Lou so mean? What's Rhoda's? Why is Rhoda so abrasive? Why is Phyllis so abrasive? You know, they basically everyone's abrasive except for uh Mary and then they they're like why is Mary such a loser and still single after 30 you know it's like all the worst fears about this thing came through in the testing and this happens a lot you know people this is I think people know this now but probably weren't as aware then that you know this these testing things are notorious this way if anything that is out of the ordinary does not test well at first because people are confused you know so it, this was one of those cases, and luckily they were stuck with Mary. Um, CBS had made that deal, so they had to put at least the first 13 episodes on the air. Uh, so they kind of they sort of had to stick stick with it, and by the time the 13 were up, uh, things were going much better. So they stuck with it. Let me ask you, you so you, as part of the reporting and research for this book, mm-hmm. you spoke to everyone on the cast? Uh, I spoke to most of the people in the cast, Um and then tons of people behind the scenes. One of my fascinating, one of my, the things I was most fascinated with was these untold stories of the people who worked behind the scenes. You know, a huge inspiration for me writing this was when I found out that Jim and Alan had hired a lot of female writers without, who didn't have a lot of experience because it was hard for them to get experience at that time. And they had done it mainly because they were such sticklers for authenticity. They wanted those female voices to chime in behind the scenes to make sure they were getting it right, getting the idea of a single 30-something woman. Did you meet Did you meet any Correct. of those women? Did you meet any I of those did. writers? I did. I met a bunch of them. That they, was my huge obsession during in, this. Introduce, introduce us to one of those writers and what has become of her. Okay. Well, I will, I will talk to you about Treva Silverman because she was the, like— I, you know, I keep saying there were a bunch of different things that were the inspiration for this book, but she was kind of like the part where I was like, oh, here we go. There's an actual book here. Um, when I talked to her, she told me so many fabulous stories about being a single woman in the 70s writing for comedy. Uh, she was she grew up in New York. She was a piano prodigy and was playing in nightclubs in New York uh, when she met James L. Brooks and made friends with him just in a bar. And they had talked about stuff. He was still working in news at CBS, and they really got along, and they stayed in touch. And she eventually, apart from that, um, she was also writing sketch comedy for a place called Upstairs at the Downstairs, which is like a review in New York. And Carol Burnett came to see her, see the the show one night, and uh, saw her work and offered her a job on a show that actually ended up being, it was right before the Carol Burnett show, it, so it failed, but she had written some sketch comedy for Carol Burnett. And then um, from there, went on to write for The Monkees, uh, which I always think is adorable and funny. Uh, you know, you take the jobs where you can get them. So she and like Mademoiselle did a big piece on her because she was a lady writing, you know, for a sitcom, writing for The Monkees. And it was a really big deal. She was one of the first women, you know, writing f- regularly for sitcoms out there in the 60s. And most of the, a lot of the women kind of had similar experiences, the ones that I talked to, were, and it ended, up, it ended up being that they were all having separate, similar experiences. You know, they were all, they were each the only woman somewhere else before they came to the Mary Tyler Moore show. So she was very used to, you know, she talked about going to pilot screenings. You would go to pilot screenings if you were a writer, just to see what was out there so you could try to write for them. 
And so she'd go to pilot screenings with, you know, and would describe rooms full of bearded men and herself, you know. And so she eventually, you know, she stayed in touch with Jim and Alan and she wrote for them a few times on their other show before this, Room 222. And as soon as they got this show off the ground, the Mary Tyler Moore show, they knew they wanted some women, but they also, especially in Trua's case, you know, they just loved her work. And so she was the first, one of the first people they hired and the first woman they hired. And she went on to become the first or one of the first women to do many things like win an Emmy by herself for comedy, be an executive level producer on a comedy, that sort of thing. So she was she was a big influence on the show and she she hung with, you know, with the big boys on the sh- on the show the whole time that she was there. Uh, and I really loved her story because I I ended up kind of feeling like she was actually, you know, the first or the real life Mary Richards. You know, she was this woman who had stayed single. She was she was 30 and single when she signed on to start writing for the show. So she really had a handle on what that was like. And she told me all kinds of great stories just about, you know, she had kind of the same life in some ways. Like she got to date a lot and have tons of fun and, you know, be this very liberated woman and work for women's rights at a time when that was a really, you know, intense and exciting thing to be doing. And she actually ends up in the middle of my book. Um, and in the middle of the show, she ends up quitting the show. It's basically her dream job. She ends up quitting the show to go to France for a year because that was always her dream. And she figured out she finally could do it because she had the, you know, the means and, you know, needed some more inspiration in her life. So she just left it all behind and she came back just in time to see the finale happen. So she gets to like, she had just flown back to the States and they were like, get here now. You have to see the finale. So she went to the taping. And that's, I sort of love her whole trajectory. I I think that her life was very, you know, at least to me, looking back as a woman in her 30s at this time, you know, it seems like this really romantic kind of life. So did, final question really. So as, as a sexy feminist and as someone who was single when you started this book and now married that it's finished? I'm, I'm domestic partnered, actually. Domestic partnered, okay. <laughs> yes. Tell me about the domestic partnership, because oh, it, that's, this is a profile the, of you as well. Yes, yes, it was just, it was the easiest, it was the easiest and quickest way for us to uh, to take care of having a legal partnership and basic protections in place. Um, you know, so we just did that because we were sort of squeamish about weddings, like I think many um Many people our age these days, you know, much to the chagrin of, I think, my parents or my mother, at least, who would enjoy a wedding, I think. Uh, Yeah, we just wanted to get that done and, you know, have all the benefits in place so that we could move on with our lives without all the fuss. Does your partner (laughs) does your partner's personality mirror anybody in the Mary Tyler Moore show? Are you you just like reliving this this show in every way? No, thank goodness. Right. Well, she didn't end up with anybody. So so luckily we could stay away from that. I I guess I'm like the next chapter after that. Um, So, no, he but he really loves like I said, he was in love with Rhoda, but he also really, really loves uh, Lou and Ed Asner in particular. He was very, very envious when I went to meet with Ed Asner. <laughs> and, just, you know, well, I guess I already said final question, but, you know, one, one more question. Sure. I mean, so Mary Tyler Moore, as we picture her in that show, 
I mean, she has had a lot of tragedy in her life since this show, right? Yeah, she really did. She, um, it's one of those those things where, um, you know, when a beloved and kind of, I think she was just known for, as we talked about her, her sort of sweet disposition. Disposition, um, you know, it's it sort of adds this extra layer to that. You're like, I can't imagine Mary Teller Moore going through all this. You know, she just bring she bring went, bring the audience up to speed just on what she went through. Yeah, and by the way, I really I strongly recommend reading her uh, memoir called After All Too. It's a really it's an extraordinary memoir in this in the sense that she actually reveals things. You know, she actually talks about things, whereas I don't think all celebrity memoirs do that. It's really lovely. But she she talks a lot about, you know, she went to rehab for alcoholism um, even during the show, but then continuously struggling with the complications from diabetes. It's part of the reason that she definitely wanted to get help for her drinking because it, you know, it added another layer of importance to that for her health. Um, Her son, her only son from uh, her first marriage ended up accidentally shooting himself. I think he was in his early twenties, which is really horrible. Um, so she's gone through a lot. She really, she really, really has. And I think, you know, this show is the thing that she's probably most known for. And I, you know, I hope that people understand what a legacy that she's left. So let me ask you a final question. And and this truly is the final question, (laughs) except for the next one. But, uh, so, so you do, you do this blog, the sexy feminist, you think about feminism a lot. Are you still a Buddhist? I am still a Buddhist. It's true. That's where the Cation comes from, actually. That's where the what comes from? The the Cation in my oh, name Jennifer is actually Cation what, Armstrong. The, mm-hmm, what is that's the actually what it's what we call a Dharma name. Um, it's the name you get when you take the precepts. So it's like you there's a ceremony where you kind of it's like, for lack of a better word, you become an official Buddhist. You 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 pledge to uphold the precepts of Buddhism. And you get a name. And so uh, my name is Kation, and it means uh, relentless pursuit of truth. So I really like that as a nonfiction writer. So as we relentlessly pursue the truth of uh, or the definition <laughs> of feminism, so the, yes. hot, the hot, the term of the moment is, mm-hmm. of course, lean in. Uh, yes. Mary Tyler Moore, or I'm sorry, Mary Richards, mm-hmm. lean in doesn't capture which, or maybe it does. Tell me what what phrase you think would capture her brand of feminism. I like I like the idea though. Um, I'm gonna have to think about that for a while. I like the idea of Mary Richards. Did she lean in? Um, there's something about that phrase that just ends up being so useful and funny to me. Um, I think she may she may have leaned in a little bit. I think she did. I think she she was doing her best to to get out there in the workplace especially that was where she was the most empowered i'm gonna i'm gonna say she did lean in um she maybe got a little flustered like a lot of us by her personal relationships she was not always you know as as things go on she stands up for herself more with men as we see her and we did talk about how she wasn't desperate for a man but work was really her primary focus during the years of the show and she she asked for equal pay when she found out she didn't get paid the same thing as the man who had the job before her. Um, she did end up, I don't remember if she gets like an official promotion, like I can't remember what her title ends up being, but she definitely takes on more responsibility at the office when she can and when she needs to. She ends up, sometimes she hosts a show. There's a time when she produced a show. 
Um, and she, you know, ends up kind of more as like a female executive at that uh, station rather than just an assistant to Lou. She ends up in meetings toward the end, you know, with real ideas, stands up for her ideas. Um, so, yeah, I think she I think she does lean in. Well, listen, I would ask you other questions, but we have to actually have a, fo- <laughs> a focus group listen to our interview before we publish it. <laughs> So uh, so we're going to do that. Jennifer. Too abrasive. <laughs> I don't think so. But uh, but uh, <laughs> but Jennifer Cation Armstrong, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Scene and Profiles, author of the brand new book out today, Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted. Thank you very much. By the way, you can find CNN Profiles on our website, cnn.com slash soundwaves, or download us from iTunes or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, Don't be shy. Share.